Remember three things wherever you go. The first, to God, thy country, and thy friend, always be true. The second, in the, distance, in the distant future when we become mellow in our old age and decide to settle down and get married, remember this definition of happiness. Happiness is being married to your best friend. And finally, remember that the only way to have a friend is to be one. With that, I would just like to wish that you, my fine friends in the mighty class of 76, will have the happiest of days and the best of luck in the years to come. And if you keep a smile on your face and happiness in your heart, I have no doubt that you will lead long, happy, successful lives with friends always at your side. Take care and have a good life. Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I'm Sean Glennis, your co-host, and I'm here with my other co-host, your other <laughs> co-host, Ar- Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? Hey, Sean. Uh, it's me, co-host Arlen. How are you? <laughs> doing well. It's uh, unseasonably warm uh, here. Not, as, not here. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's nice. It's a nice day. I got the windows open. It is seasonably cold here. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about Wiseman's 1977 film, Canal Zone, mm-hmm. uh, his 11th film, um, which is a biggie. Yeah, uh, uh, a sleeper, kind yeah. of. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it's been cool, kind of, as we've been doing this project and, like, developing a f- somewhat of a following, like, just... You know, you and I will log something, and then it seems like there are a lot more logs right after that as people gear up for an episode. But it seems like across the board, uh, people who were watching this film for the first time were recognizing it as like an excellent film and a major work for him. You know, I tried to get meat on the popular section in Letterboxd, didn't happen, but we came with Canal Zone, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. that was really important. Um, I should say, before we get into it, uh, our, our guest for today's episode is, is Eric Hines, um, who people probably know as curator of film for the Museum of Moving Image, but also uh, has written for, wrote for the Film Comment mag- magazine um, for a long time, had uh, consistently great uh, column about uh, nonfiction filmmaking, make it real that um, you can find also on the film comment website, but um, has talked to Wiseman a number of times and just a very bright guy. Um, so that is a very good chat. Yeah, great talk. Look forward to that. But uh, so Canal Zone, um, Wiseman, uh, this is his first time outside of the uh, quote unquote yeah. outside. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and he's never been more in America. Uh, but he he shot this in uh, May and June of 1976. Shot about like a hundred thousand feet of film. Um, and last episode with Mamber, we talked about how Meat was his uh, sort of like stealth bicentennial film and canal zone is like textually the bicentennial film it is it's like this is about the bicentennial uh or you know just like 
bringing it out of the subtext and making it like just uh, a celebration of America, whatever that may mean. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. it's it's like it's really a microcosm for that moment, right? Because in this time when a country is reflecting on its history and it, you know, current state of affairs, uh, that's all very much happening to this insular community as um you know political politically kind of gets upturned and there's a lot of unrest and and the imminence of the handover uh, from the u.s to to panama mm-hmm. um and it it it's it also marks the beginning of the community films that uh he um continues to do through his most recent work um mm-hmm. I think uh, his work on like in Jackson Heights and uh, Monrovia City Hall uh, has uh, given him a lot of uh, a lot more audience members as well. Like I think people are attracted to this type of mode from Wiseman, um, and this is sort of ground zero for that. Um, and and there's there's some of my favorite films. They offer like sort of this glimpse into to how work and leisure and community priorities are are organized in a specific place and what's great about them is that for the most part we don't really get to see this otherwise in cinema or tv or whatever like canal zone like community isn't really something that is thought about a lot or documented much or like you know monrovia indiana um Mm. is a perfect example of that uh belfast maine um just like these places that uh, are uh, not really documented. Yeah, and it, it's interesting how these films kind of punctuate throughout his body of work, you know, and and you know maybe actually more recently we've gotten a few more of them uh, uh, in closer proximity, but you know it, it it seems to be a touchstone for him something he kind of returned to and and uh, dip back into that well as as kind of uh examinations of american communities you know throughout the decades that he's been making w- work and and how and the changes uh between them uh, both in time and geography um but you know it, it's it's really helpful if we're talking about weissman's films as like uh, anthropological kind of project, you know, to to get these touchstones, uh, you know, spaced apart by multiple years. I'd be interested to know how it changes the work as well for Wiseman. Um, you know, the approach, the like physical work, and sort of also the mental um, yeah. project of capturing a, a larger uh, campus um, hmm. of, of filmmaking. But uh, did you notice, Arlen? In Barry Keith Grant's um, book, where he talks about Canal Zone, that he referred to the City Symphony films. I did. I did notice that. I wrote, draws connection to City Symphony films. (laughs) (laughs) A little callback to uh, the episode where we talk about uh, Walter Ruttman's 1927 film, uh, Berlin. Right. I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about. especially as we've talked about with like meat and primate having largely comprised of like long extended silent sequences uh and those early city symphony films and like we this is a film uh that has a ton of dialogue uh and and speechifying um but you know we we get um 
especially in the opening as we're looking at the canal itself and, and the immediate surrounding areas, uh, just some really amazingly composed uh, silent sequences of just, you know, the functions of the canal and what it is to be a giant cargo ship going through there. Yeah, I mean, the opening is so elusive in a way um, where you're just, it's a 25 minute sequence before we get to the governor slash uh, president of the company. Um, and well, conflict of interest, probably. <laughs> and uh, it, it, even though it probably sounds oblique, it, it reminded me of like watching like a Siming Ling film where you're watching just like Lee King Shen, like walk around or eat lunch. Uh, you know, something where you're just you're sort of like getting a feel for this. Um, although in in Canal Zone, it turns out to be like the last time you'll ever right. see this part of of the the zone. Um, but it, so it feels up until uh, Canal Zone in his filmography a bit elusive in terms of like what he's going to be doing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, contrast this with like Hospital uh, or High School the beginning which are just sort of like rapid and uh really like throwing you into what you're going to be seeing for the rest of the time um, right it's much different yeah it's, it's a bit of a bait and switch i guess uh especially considering something that comes up a lot in the writings uh that came out around the, the release of the film is that the canal zone was very much like a discussion of public discourse at the time mm -hmm. um and what was going to happen like like people noted that this was like an unusually timely film for Weissman. Um, so, so having that stuff up front, um, you know, editing it while this discourse is occurring uh, was probably very conscious of him, not only, you know, for his own reasons, but also like to, to satiate, I guess, a, a piece of that before completely subverting it. Yeah, yeah. And so, like, in order to sort of, like, get a little bit of background for listeners that uh, might not know much about the Canal Zone or the Canal, um, starting around 1880, uh, English-speaking uh, Caribbean people were brought to, to build this canal um, under, from what I read, were basically, like, slave-like conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and 20,000 of them ended up dying. And uh, then this this canal has been talked about ever since as this marvel of engineering. Um, and uh, it seems to be part of the, the idea uh, for this canal, you know, was, was part of this uh, furthering of America as a global uh, enterprise, um, part of like Roosevelt, uh, who took over president around the turn of the century, a big part of pushing America as, as like this, this country with sea power. Um, linking uh, the U.S.'s expanding power over the Pacific to the Atlantic um, as sort of this strategy to cement the, the U.S. as like the most powerful nation on Earth. Mm -hmm. And we should note, I guess, that, you know, it was originally a, f a French endeavor uh, coming off the success of the Suez Canal. Um, but at the time where they were doing this in the, I believe, mid to late 1800s, like the the technology to do it just wasn't there. The the like engineering uh, ideas just weren't there. Um, like it's it's it, it was interesting to learn just like the how it works. You know how it's it's not 
simply like a dredge between the Caribbean and the Pacific, but they're they're raising the water up in these locks to lift boats onto an artificial lake uh, that then carries them across Panama before being lowered into the the other side, um, which wasn't a concept, I guess, at the time. You know, the Suez was just like kind of that straight up dredge. Um, mm -hmm. So, so, and, and I guess, you know, a bit of a passing of the torch in terms of like global power and, you know, who's dominant uh, yeah. in, in imperialism between Europe and the U.S. Yeah, and, and in that, that like, around that 25 minute mark where we hear from the governor slash president of the company, um, he like immediately starts talking about like how. 1965 to 68 period of time we were undergoing some of the same trauma and the same difficulties we're undergoing right now. We were involved in uh, negotiations with Panama, the idea of a change in the status of the 1903 treaty. We were then uh, looking at a very dismal financial picture, appeared to be unfolding. Uh, we were just on the brink of having a very tough survival of making a break-even operation as required to do by law. Two circumstances uh, intervened to, to save the financial situation. One, the Suez Canal closed, and there was a diversion of traffic through here. And secondly, uh, there was the Vietnamese War. Not very happy for anybody, but it did occasion the flow of uh, significant number of ships. And so this was a reprieve of a period of years, uh, brought uh, more money into the toll structure and therefore accommodated our, our needs for a longer period of time. Basically saying like war is very profitable. For sure, for sure. <laughs> and uh, ever since uh, that stopped, uh, it's been really hard to make a profit. And right. So we get this, this, this setting of the table of like, what exactly uh, are the terms of, of profit for the canal? Yeah, I mean, it, it's clearly, you know, like a major strategic uh, holding, right? Like, like you, if you can get uh, warships, you know, from port on the eastern seaboard to Vietnam without going around the horn, you know, that that's a major strategic and economic advantage. And I guess now, you know, we would say the purpose of the canal is, is primarily economic and just, you know, moving goods around the planet um but you know i'm sure if and when called upon you know it, it, there's going to be restrictions on who's allowed to send boats through there and in thinking about this uh this moment in time for the for the canal um and the moment that wiseman came to make this film like you're talking about uh in terms of what he might have had in his mind i think like last episode uh we talked about how Wiseman's politics uh, with meat have have already shown an evolution, and there's like this movement from like reformism to disillusionment to more radical historical materialism, and it is interesting uh, in Grant's passage on Canal Zone, Barry Keith Grant's passage, um, he says something similar like a move from liberal humanism to a more sophisticated political consciousness. Um, an easy way to support this is to think about that, to think about Wiseman's timing with coming to the canal zone. Uh, just like meat arrived during the country's, you know, height of meat consumption, which maybe that was, uh, whether that was on purpose or not, doesn't yeah. matter. Um, but canal zone arrives in a very topical fashion one year before the, the signing of the, the Panama Canal Treaty of 1977. 
which of course was very much debated. And uh, in James Walcott's Village, Re- Village Voice Review, which we talk a lot about, um, he has this, this passage that just kind of sets it up. Uh, David McCullough's The Path Between the Seas is notched on the bestseller list. Conservative coneheads are mobilizing anti-treaty offensives and nearly every day brings dispatches from the embattled American community there. So he's obviously interested in the zone as a space for like political examination. Wiseman is. Um, But also to support the claim that he's growing more sophisticated in his politics that you know the film is not directly confrontational mm-hmm. i mean there are definitely moments within uh why within the umbrella of wiseman's work that are confrontational but but this is an oblique and absurd work showing a way of life that exhibits this anxiety of national identity um right. rather than rather than you know like we've talked about the muckraker yeah I, and i think you know, Grant is absolutely right in in noting that um, sophistication because you know I think up to me, you know, there he had this reputation and you know justified or not as like a muckraker, right? And like like he's uh, doing ex- exposes, which you know I think we've talked about. That's not really what he's doing, but that was kind of the conception, right? He's like pointing out the the lack and the faults of like the institutions that govern our lives um in this film you know you can argue whether or not he's making an explicit political point but i i don't know that you would necessarily say something like he's there to like expose the canal zone and and mm-hmm. the sophistication really turns turns up in the writing about it at the time uh, from different authors like for instance we have david denby uh in the boston phoenix who i think very uh astutely calls it a portrait of reactionary american ideology in a pure state uh, which that, that's how I would take it. Um, but uh, meantime, over at Variety, uh, Coley, I believe, uh, calls it a celebration of the American way of life home at home and abroad, which I don't know how you could come away yeah. from this film taking it that way. The Variety article is interesting because the author says that uh, his work has ceased to be analytical since Primate and right. that he hits rock bottom with canal zone people really savaged this film at the time yeah know. he calls it like a tedious and limp piece of cinema <laughs> yeah. um and then says that like there's no information about the region and social perspective but um the uh the denby piece that you that you referenced um which is just a good piece of of uh writing um is probably i would say one of the best contemporary contemporaneous reviews uh we've gotten and um uh it's interesting though that like with this film we've able to we've been able to find more this is probably the most uh reviews that that we've been able to find it's true Um, yeah that one is really good the sight and sound one by louise sweet is very good uh oh and but denby i was gonna say he calls uh wiseman's first 10 films the most important documentary achievement since the death of flaherty yeah and 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 david denby would continue uh to be uh, Mm -hmm. a weissman proselytizer he's got a piece in the uh moma book that came out about him uh, a number of years ago um there was a 
New York Times, John J. O'Connor, who we've mentioned in the last couple episodes, uh, he was, you know, getting tired of, of the Wiseman project after primary meet <laughs> as well. Um, and, but he was actually quite taken with, with Canal Zone and says that it's like artfully arranged and, and full of exquisite ironies. Um, Gary Arnold, I can't remember if we've talked about him in, in uh, yeah, Washington Post. Yeah. Post. Uh, he said that the movie's like terribly tedious and overstays its welcome. Yeah, it was just uh, like read the news instead, which is yeah, like, yeah. you know, if, if, if that's what you're you're coming here for, yeah, you'll probably uh, think think that there's a lack in this film. But, but you know, that's never what Weissman does. So I don't know why you'd go into it like that. <laughs> J- James Walcott, which we talk uh, a lot about and who's like... He, yeah, he called meat too austere and he, he's like back again to just complain about like detachment and says like, uh, Wiseman's too young a filmmaker to be a camera toting Mandarin. <laughs> and it's funny though, that Grant and Benson and Anderson just sort of like take his review out. To I know. Year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it, it was really satisfying just being yeah. so frustrated with Walcott over this series. Uh, like he says, he says he's not sensitive to the needs of his audience. Right. Which is like, um, w- you know, what, what are you looking for in films <laughs> that, that, uh, you're feeling yeah. this way? Yeah, and then Frank Rich in Time Magazine was pretty high on it as well. So uh, there, there's a mix, but um, definitely like we're getting some strands of people who like as this, his, especially like the length of this film becomes a problem for people. Right, right. It, it, it just becomes too much. And I mean, you know, we talk a bit with Eric later about like the legacy of Weissman and, and just the f- impacts on contemporary documentary filmmaking. Um, but you know, at the time I, I wonder, I've struggled to think of anything, uh, that, you know, would have been both so like quote unquote observational and, and also so like long, you know, like, uh, you know, it, 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 if, if we talk about like having a frame of reference for what he's doing, right. And if you're think documentary is one thing and you want information and explanation and you get very little of that over the course of nearly three hours like i I could imagine it being a very uh, tedious experience for you well yeah i mean like these are viewers that don't have the like don't know about near death or city hall or ex libris (laughs) like we we are privileged in that way for sure yeah right right I mean, but um, they, they don't, they don't at the same time, you know, that like, they don't even know about Shoah. They don't know, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, you know, they don't know, have like uh, just a grant, like three hour documentary as, uh, as we talked about with uh, Mamber in the last episode, you know, anytime you're uh, shooting, you're burning film, right. And you're spending money. So like just uh, to have. I guess the freedom to produce a film this long in this manner was was in and of itself kind of an innovation. Mm-hmm. And and I mentioned um, when we talked with Eric about how this was the beginning of his new deal, his like five year deal. Yeah. Uh, so um, you have to think that there was a bit of a a feeling of security right. for him. Right. Um, but the film is like full of so many rich. Uh, observations or whatever you want to call them um that uh, i mean it's it's hard to it's hard to encapsulate this one because it is there's so much going on in it but there's a lot of fun stuff to talk about uh you know we get this ham radio sequence <laughs> wa1 
INB, portable, HR1. That's King Zulu 5, silver dollar in the canal zone. I'm standing by for W3NJY up there in the good country. Uh, go ahead, partner. This is uh, Ed down here. Oh, Ed. King Zulu 5, silver dollar down there in the canal zone. W3 November, Juliet Yankee. Up in Edgewater, Maryland, which is just outside of Annapolis, Maryland, on the Chesapeake Bay, old crab town. Uh, what the heck are you doing down there in the canal zone? Are you uh, with the military or are you a civilian or uh, uh, what do you do down there anyway? I, uh, up here, I work for the Navy. I'm with the Navy in the uh, torpedo business. Uh, <laughs> so, um, back to you, Ed. Uh, KZ-5, Silver Dollar, W3NJY, go. Yeah, W3NJY is KZ-5SD, Silver Dollar in the canal zone. Okay, Carol. Well, I'm, uh... I'm uh, working with Panama Canal Company, and I'm a marine engineer, and I've been down here about 13 years. I got a, I got another year to go, uh, reach the ripe old age of 55, and I'll be retiring from Panama Canal Company and going back to the states, good state of Florida, and a little town called Wilaka. And I don't know what in the world I'm going to do when I get up there, except drown worms. Tell lies, swat flies, and work ham radio, buddy. That's about the size of it. And uh, I hope you're around in a year and a half, uh, or about a, a year and three months, and you'll be able to copy me. Hi, hi. I'll be uh, WB4ROK up there, and I'll be looking for you. Uh, I'll be looking for you, uh, uh, Carol, because uh, I won't have anything else to do except that. Hi, hi. Um. Which is just like a, a great document of like, I you know, I was I was watching um, a Hitchcock movie recently, The Wrong Man, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And there's a moment where uh, this woman is taking notes, like a secretary, and it shows her paper and she's writing in shorthand. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things that's like, I was thankful for, it doesn't really add anything to the, the plot or anything like that. Um, but I was thankful for, it's just like a document of something that's lost. And ham radio is definitely that. Like I just, it's it's a pleasure to watch. I, I, there's probably more to talk about this scene, as as we say later. No scene in a Wiseman film uh, exists uh, unless it has multiple meanings. Um, but part of the the pleasure of this scene is just seeing somebody use ham radio and use right. and, and somebody like communicating with somebody um, using all of these terms like. Uh, HR four zero three three seven. Like I'm up here, yeah, and like, uh, and you know, he's talking to somebody in America, which he calls the good country, and he's talking about retirement and what he's gonna do. And um, so there's definitely something about like this, this disconnect, and like serving to show you sort of the the uh, bubble that he's in, um, mm -hmm. and the connection between America. There's something special for. Uh, these these white Americans in the in the zone, mm -hmm. um, and their connection to actual uh, American America, um, but at the same time, it's just like awesome to watch. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's a thing uh, we learned about extra texturally, but a lot of the people who live there are like second and third generation Zonians, right? Um, and you know, they they. I noticed no one really had an accent. Maybe the Zonian accent was maybe slightly like Northeastern tinged. I noticed in a few places. Um, but like, you know, they very much hold, 
identify as Americans, but are at, at the same time completely divorced from the United States physically. So there's this, I guess, uh, going back to meat, like mythologizing of America and their idealization of America um, that's incredibly prevalent and heightened throughout the canal zone. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I guess it'll, it's uh, important to talk about you know, throughout this film, there there's this undercurrent of like stress and tension and unease, right? Like I wrote in, on Letterbox, you know, the vibes are off in Balboa, um, and they they were um, at Balboa High School a few years prior. There was like an armed skirmish that resulted with 24 people dead over the flying of the American flag at the school right like so it's like this is the level of fervor and and devotion to the notion of america and anxiety right right because because you know the writing's on the wall right like like and and despite everything uh we talk about later like the kfc had Then Jimmy Buffett, right? Like, um, it's it, you, you are telling yourself you're in America, you have a court, you know, uh, with American law, there's the Boy Scouts, um something prevalent throughout the film is the presence of the American flag, uh, different variations and permutations of the flag, retiring of the flag, uh, little flags on graves. Right. So, um, but you're in Panama, you're, (laughs) you know, it's, it's tropical. There's tropical flora and fauna everywhere. There's locals, you know, who are this subservient class to the American Zonians. Um, so there's, there's just this like fundamental aspect of it that uh is just off which made me think like all of that that maybe and and, like grant talks about this in the opening of his uh chapter that maybe it's time to get away from talking about like wiseman's work as like the the chronicler of american institutions and closer to like the people uh in america like America as an institution, but, but Mm -hmm. sort of flipping it from like this, um, this hierarchy of like the institution and then the people in it, but more of like, um, looking at people as they move through various institutions, um, within America. Um, but uh, Grant says like Wiseman gets away from like the institution as a social microcosm, which is kind of hard to do, uh, kind of hard for me to think about, uh, especially with something like Canal Zone, which is like a bubble cosplaying America. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it is in some ways like a microcosm, like kind of like a scene is is a little bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, But where, where that bubble ended up adopting the structures of the outside world, which is against its goals, Canal Zone is built to be emblematic of the world outside, what it represents, you know, the good country. Um, in, in one piece, they 
can't remember which one they they point out that uh the line from the marriage counselor guy uh he says what we are trying to do is structure an environment in which distractions are removed saying that uh it speaks to the larger reality of the zone which is just like so on point yeah that that marriage counseling session seemed like it must have been a nightmare okay essentially what marriage enrichment is what this workshop will be it will be a 24-hour cram course in communications. Gloria and I are going to structure an environment in which you will communicate with each other much more intently than you've ever communicated before. We've removed the destructions. We've removed uh, all of the things that get in the way of communication. And we ask you not to call home to check on your children. If anything's wrong, they'll call us and we'll get in touch with you. We want you to, to stay in your rooms here. This is a, it's a beautiful view out uh, over the Caribbean, but we've got something more beautiful that we want to show you, and that's in the quality of your relationship once you can communicate on a very deep basis. Essentially, marriage enrichment is an educational institution. We have a curriculum, and the curriculum is Feelings 101, Communications 202. We have a format, and the format is reading, and it's writing, and it's reflections. And for the next 24 hours, you'll be either reading or writing or reflecting with a short time available for sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> Which, and, and it comes uh, in the midst of a a sequence of a few scenes kind of um, establishing the mental state of the zone, mm -hmm. you know, including um, a brief visit to Weissman's, you know, uh, primary uh, institution, the mental hospital, right? And it's got like a gate over it, like Auschwitz. Uh, and, and just when you go inside, though, it's all local Panamanians, you know, who, who as much as we're... They're all people of color as well right right and and it's as as what's preceded is you know a parade of mental uh anxiety and stresses from you know white american zonians as, yeah. as you know marital infidelity or child abuse or whatever uh but you know look look who's actually populating the waiting room at the mental hospital right and and who and the prisons <laughs> definitely that the place you see the most uh you know local panamanians is is the prison mess hall right like ex it's exclusively black panamanians uh which we don't get ever uh, except in in the the waiting room and it's just you know a bunch of old people watching dubbed abbott and costello um so like you know who who's really being affected here who's really being s subjugated uh and and it's this like this feeling of this community adopting a victimhood that it does that it really has no rights to there's a great yeah, thinking about all of these like these ways that uh, national identity is like constructed in, in this film. Uh, there's a great like Benson and Anderson line that kind of like summarizes the the film for me. It's like in Canal Zone, the substance of reality is rhetorical. Mm -hmm. um, it's just such a such a, a evocative line of like none of this is real. <laughs> like it's yeah. real it, as long as we keep saying it's real. As right. long as we keep saying America is great, like America's great. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it goes back to what we noted in the last episode about like Franju's idea of surreality of like taking <laughs> something out of its natural setting and placing it somewhere else and like the inherent absurdities that arise from that, right? And, yeah. and you know, this, if we're going by that definition, like this could be Weissman's most surreal work to date. And, and thinking about the mental uh, health center, uh, you obviously have to think about follies right and um but there's a there's a funny scene uh, outside of that it's just like an interstitial of, of like some people walking away from the theater which you see a couple times and a couple is walking away and it says like special like sneak <laughs> yeah, preview right. one flew over the cuckoo's nest <laughs> <laughs> and um former uh, weissman <laughs> collaborator on sonia honey yeah, you you have to think that's a little a wink, but uh, there is like also a great like movie showtime thing when we are in the the uh, radio booth, and uh, they're showing a, a a bunch of stuff. Lenny, um, the passenger, uh, uh, the happy hooker. <laughs> I, I I was like, I wonder if Wiseman on the the nights after shooting was like going to check out like Antonio's <laughs> passenger. <laughs> <laughs> or the happy hooker <laughs> probably what else are you gonna do yeah i think uh but th- this is like um as far as films that we've talked about so far that i hadn't seen actually maybe even including them uh no sorry welfare but, um and and primate but as far as like new discoveries for me that we talked about this is like the one that that just kind of blew me away mm-hmm. um and I, I think that uh, from what I've seen so far, like it's it's a really key work, and um, and you can just see while watching this the first time, especially if you're watching in sequence uh, with the rest of his work, just sort of like you can you can see the canvas open up, and mm-hmm. him like discover new ways of um, making nonfiction uh, film, and uh, it's really terrific. Yeah, and I mean we should note, you know, this is not only the first film on his new deal, but kind of the first film in a series of films uh, about like American imperialism uh, that go beyond, you know, the, the contiguous United States. So something he felt the need to uh, address that he, he hadn't yet addressed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for the, the next couple. We only got what three more brain films. Right. Yeah. Yeah. These, these three and then model. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, I will say we don't have any emails this episode, but I, I, I'll say a shout out to, to Detlef who claimed Barry Keith Grant's book. Hope you, (laughs) congratulations. Um, uh, so, uh, sorry for anyone that thinks it's still available. (laughs) Just listening to the episode and thinks maybe it's still out there. Um, But uh, you can send us an email and um, ask us questions or uh, anything like that um, at wisemanpodcast.gmail.com. Um, do you have anything else for, for today's episode, Arlen? Um, well, just, uh, I guess, even though this is this kind of um, another disembarkation for Weisman, um it's interesting to note how it's also like a very solid continuation from meat. Um, Mm -hmm, there were, mm -hmm. there are multiple kind of through lines there. We've, we talk later about, you know, again, the notion of like the American myth 
Um, but you know, there, there kind of some specific callbacks early on, like the, uh, small, uh, boats that where they're trying to get a cow off it and they're mm -hmm. you know with a cattle prod and like i thought really we were strong. done with yeah, this. <laughs> and uh but but uh i i really noted um the connection we got early on with the tour guide right uh with the tour guide and meet at the same time we kind of had these japanese tourists on the toyota cargo ship going through the mm -hmm. canal and and the tour guide serving as um a guide for the audience as much as the people in the film explaining you know what the hell all this is <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah got mazas on there <laughs> <laughs> cool um but yeah no everyone watch canal zone everyone watch all weissman films i mean that's what we're here for yeah. but um we, we but, i mean this was one that like i don't know i think in in i know it's not the best barometer but in terms of like People, like young people watching movies like this was like in the hundreds of views right. on letterbox and it's right. like this you will not be uh you, you will you will you'll be happy you watch this um so yeah i mean if through. if you like weissman there's just so much to relish in here if you've i mean you know if this is your first weissman film there's a ton it, it'll blow your mind i think um but like coming at it from the films both before and after there's so many kind of like aha moments through it i think that um really just can further the understanding of his films and and project as a whole i mean you know to your point i initially only uh watched it because I came across a, a used copy of the DVD at Amoeba, and whenever I mm. find one of those there, I, I snatch it up because you know. It was that loser that <laughs> sold that. Some jerk, yeah. And I mean, uh, that that is something I'd like to note is, um, you know, I have a number of the Zipporah DVDs, and as much as I cherish them and and am appreciative of Canopy, I yearn for the day that these films get a true restoration and like a blu-ray set because like even on this dvd you know we've got like interlacing artifacts you know i'm sure mm -hmm. it was like a beta tape transfer from the broadcast or something um and you right. know these these films really deserve that archival treatment and and i hope they get them someday yeah that's a really good point um that'll be something that to uh, keep talking about and thinking about yeah yeah Cool. All right. On air. Well, in, yeah, enjoy uh, the chat with uh, Eric Hines. Cool. to Wiseman Podcast. Uh, we are joined with our guest today, Eric Hines, the curator of film of Museum of the Mu Moving Image. Um, he's also a writer and critic. You may have read his uh, film comment column, Make It Real, um, or heard him on various festival uh, dispatch podcasts. Um, how are you doing, Eric? I'm great. Thanks for having me here. Yeah. Um, 
we are very pleased to uh, have you. Um, so usually with like the guests, I like to kind of get a sense of like how you became interested in, in Wiseman's work. Um, like what was your in- introductory film and, and that kind of thing? Oh, wow. Introductory film is interesting. Well, I, I guess the um, my interest in Wiseman's work I mean, very briefly to get into a little bit of uh, my path is sort of helpful in terms of that, because I do think that I came to most of Wiseman's work a little bit later um, uh, as I came to film as a, you know, the, the world of film as a, as, as a career path a little bit later, too. Um, uh, you know, I, my background is in kind of uh, creative writing, fiction writing, uh, and uh, I was a books person for my 20s, and it wasn't until I turned right around when I turned 30 that I started writing about film and feeling you know, emboldened to, to look for, for, you know, uh, kindred spirits and as well as a a career path there. So it came a little bit later, but I guess the first, so that said, uh, my transition point was I was a a book buyer for Kim's video, the Kim's video chain, uh, in the very, like, uh, basically, uh, 2001 to 2003, um, that was my position. And so, uh, basically encountering all these Wiseman films, uh, the sort of intimidating catalog that were available at that video store. I knew about him, um, but I hadn't begun to really wade in until that time. Um, And I would say, you know, now 20 some odd years later, um, I'm still catching up, you know, and I feel like that's what's kind of great about what you're doing um, and the way that you're doing it. Um, Because I know that there are certain films that you're also catching up with through this, um, which I I love, you know. in the ways that, so, but to go back to it, I mean, Tidica Follies, I think was the first thing I saw because I knew it was notorious. It was hard to get a hold of. Um, it was, I mean, like all of his films were super hard to get a hold of in video stores. Um, so when we got them at Kim's, it was kind of a big deal because um, yeah. he had resisted making them available outside of libraries. Um, um, and I don't even remember the, the terms in which we were able to ha- have the films. Um, but, but yeah, I remember them sort of all showing up in the, in the back room and us all just kind of, you know, fondling these, uh, these, these DVDs of four hour films with black and white images on the covers. Um, but yeah, I think Titicut Fall was probably the first one I, I watched, but there's this kind of haze of memory of these batches of films that I discovered, you know, um, there'd be mm-hmm. some thread that I'd pursue and, and poke around and see a few at a time. And I think I'm still doing that. Yeah. It's really interesting how. You, you know, myself included, you're not the first guest to talk about video stores being like the entree to Weissman's work and just thinking about like, I guess, this sort of gap between like the downfall of video stores and then Weissman's films showing up on Canopy a few years ago and kind of revitalizing the scholarship. But there was like kind of a limbo period in there where, you know, yeah, unless you were going directly to Zipporah, there was just, you know, there were were movies you heard about more than watched, yeah. Unless you were an an academic. Mm -hmm. And I would say, I would revise that a little bit. There's the video store reality of the catalog, but I think that, um, to be honest, you know, uh, the, my first encounter with his work was unconsciously or unintentionally. Like I, I, now that, now that we're talking about it, the first thing I saw by Wiseman was High School 2. Um, because it was on PBS and it was just, oh, cool. right, you know, yeah. and it's a four hour broadcast, you know, and, and I remember being entranced and fascinated and I watched it for about an hour and a half and that's all I, whatever, I, I 
I, I moved on with whatever else I was doing. It's not something I sat down to watch. Um, and that kind of stuck with me as an experience. And so when the name, uh, when his name started coming up a little bit more in college, et cetera, um, he became more of a, but yeah, I mean, I, I wonder how many beyond the video store, um, how many people encountered his work that way because they all, they sh- they showed up on PBS for decades. Um, right. yeah. And they didn't show them a lot, you know, and there was no, uh, internet option to, to, to catch up to them later on. You basically showed once or twice and, and that was your chance. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one thing, um, that's interesting that I hadn't really thought of before and, um, before reading uh, something that you wrote, because you've obviously gotten a chance to watch many of Wiseman's films in a, in a cinema. Um, so can you talk to us about like what it's like to watch Wiseman films with an audience? Because I've never had the pleasure to do that. I don't know if Arlen has, but I saw but, Ex Libris um, yeah. when, when it came out. But, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But yeah, we, we haven't really discussed that, but obviously there is, uh, especially with, you know, these long passages that aren't necessarily like self-evident um, sometimes or as to why they're included. Um, and yeah, I, I can imagine that being a, an interesting experience. It is. And I, yeah, I mean, I recommend it <laughs> um, because uh, they're much funnier in an audience. Um, yeah. and, and, and I know that you talk about a lot about how his films are, are funny, but there's something about... Uh, there being more than one person reacting to something that they find funny at the same time, that it kind of gives you permission for this long, you know, intimidating piece to be fun and entertaining. And he's intentionally doing that, but it's very hard, I think, to grasp that without there being an audience of people reacting. And I would say, um, the other thing that I love about watching Wiseman with Audience is when he's going into those extended banal passages, the meetings, you know, the lectures, etc. Um, there being a point after seven, eight, nine, ten minutes where somebody just starts giggling. Um, And again, I think that's entirely Wiseman's intent. You know, there's something that emerges by sort of being in this room with people uncomfortably for a long period of time, watching people in a room uncomfortably for a long time that is kind of incredible and infectious. And it makes um, whatever the subject is, whatever time he's taking within that subject, it makes it um way more dynamic i think than if you're watching it at home you know i remember watching in jackson heights premiere at the toronto film festival years ago and i mean i think it's a incredible incredible film like it's one of my favorites of his um uh but it it is really made up of long of long scenes you know Mm -hmm. um and uh there's a there's a um community uh meeting uh late in that that oh yeah push it like pushes the patients significantly <laughs> um and i remember looking around during that that section and um realizing that everybody in that theater um because they had been committed to seeing it in that theater was locked into it you know and it's what a, what a magic trick that is <laughs> yeah well i i want to i want to go to something specifically that you wrote about that film that relates but um but beforehand i do want to say like uh talking about the comedy I wish so badly I could have seen City Hall in a theater just to see like the trash scenes like with people because it's just like the funniest thing to watch these things being compacted. But um, but you you wrote uh, around the time of uh, in Jackson Heights about um, Morse code, which I think is like a really uh, interesting thing to talk about. You you have this passage um, 
For all their scope, depth, and complexity, Wiseman's films often unfold with the elegant simplicity of Morse code. Short establishing shots, long scene, brief interstitial sequence, really long scene, short exterior shot, really, really, really long scene, and onward to the end, holding our attention, communicating meaning through the music of modulation duration. Um, and you, you talk also in, the, in that article about like sort of settling in, like you're talking about, like uh, once you once you know the formula, like knowing the scene is going to last a while and that you can just sort of like get settled in and watch differently, as you put it. But it, it truly is one of the pleasures of his filmography that become like especially prominent in the last like decade or so. Um, where is you know just like consistently ballooned in length but um when 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 we had adam Neyman on he asked us about like uh is there a correct way to watch a wiseman film like at least for us like how do you watch a wiseman film and we've talked also about like sort of this do's and don'ts that stephen mamber has written about recently um about like watching a, a wiseman film but i think your morse code description is a really nice uh addition to this discussion of like just sort of understanding the beats and sort of the larger um makeup of that Uh, i'll I'll get to that metaphor in a second but i I think that like any true truly great artist who thinks about structure and thinks about experience while also not disowning their own impulses in terms of making the work what it needs to be you know he teaches you how to watch the film. I think, I think he teaches you, he, he establishes a rhythm. Um, they may, you may think that they are formless or that they are unwieldy, but they're na- they never are. Um, mm-hmm. And so there is a pattern there that you can follow. There is a rhythm that you can lock into. And I think that, um, that the Morse code is the best way that I could get into that because um, with documentary films and in speaking to a lot of documentary filmmakers, unfortunately, you talk a lot about the A roll and the B roll, right? You talk about the things that, um, whatever the scenes that you're crafting. And then there's a lot of other stuff, whether they're cutaways or B roll that sort of like gives you a breath before we move on to the next scene. Fred doesn't work that way, you know? And so the, the Morse code thing is helpful to me to think about because I don't think he thinks of those those interstitials, the kind of going in and coming out of a location as being B-roll at all, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about them. I've asked, the, about, I've asked him about the, those quite a bit, and he doesn't really have anything interesting to say about it. It's, it's, it's what you're doing in terms of, well, that's, of course, what you would do. Like, I'm going to another location. I'm going to sort of, like, zoom in, in a sense, through cuts to what that location is and then zoom back out. But I don't think he realizes that, or maybe he does, and he just doesn't, find it interesting right. but nobody else does that you know and i think that there's something about that that is rhythmic as much as it's as, as it's locating um but it's not taking you it's not giving you a breath to gather yourself to move on to the next important thing he's going to show you those are incredibly important things um that he's giving you they're short you know like yeah. the edit is very very quick he's he, there's nothing to dwell on here he's moving you on to the to, he's moving from one place to the next but those lily pads those little dots in the mm-hmm. morse code um, are, are absolutely crucial. They're, 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 they're connecting material. Yeah. I think think we've talked about how those kind of interstitials weren't always as present in the earliest films. Yeah. And it was something he kind of builds towards and develops and before it becomes, you know, something you come to expect throughout his work. Um, but it really seems to be interesting how it's like in those early films, often we're within a single building you know, and, right. and as the scope widens, we have to sort of resituate ourselves uh, uh, 
like in place throughout a film, you know, in a, in a way that those early films didn't require. And so maybe this is a good time you brought up in Jackson Heights to just talk about, you know, Canal Zone as being like the first in a series of films looking at like towns or places or broader communities that are just not so um, uh, engrossed within like a single building or, yeah. or series of buildings of an institution. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like Canal Zone is kind of the beginning of a, of a next era. Uh, or at least beginning a certain type of film that he would be making. Um, it's interesting how it's the longest film he made to date, and it would be the longest film for another decade or so. Um, and, and yet it's so much shorter than what he would do after that. Um, but uh, but it is kind of the first of its kind. Uh, and yeah, we did, at, at the museum we did, uh, when uh, Monrovia came out, we did a, a small retrospective of these films, of these uh, community films. Um, and... I kind of, this is absurd to say because I, I mean, I love so many of them, but there's something about that thread of his filmmaking that I find um, uh, particularly, uh, that I have a great affection for because there's, um, he's slippery. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm zipping around a little bit, but I'm going to get back to, to, to the right spot. Um, he's slippery because even his films that are about an institution and, there, uh, and, and it happens in a building, say, um, they're not quite as, you know, um, conscribed as you think they're going to be, you know, his sense of what that place mm -hmm. is and sense of what is worth showing, um, and how to get at, um, uh, representing it, uh, is, is much, it's, it's less straightforward than you think, even from the beginning, I think. Um, of course, now we get to the point where city hall is, you know, 80% outside of a building of city hall, right. you know, um, and, uh, and, and that's, you know, he's, he's certainly progressed from the early films that you're saying, but I do think that his sense of that place, his sense of that institution has always been broader, more playful, less predictable than you would think it would be in terms of like what, what the films are called and what their scope or supposedly are. Um, and and I like how with these community films, obviously that allows him to break much further away from that being an institution or there being a building. Um, and so in a way, I think that he's actually... Um, there's more there are t at times there's a more discernible thread in these community films than there is for an institution film for the institution film he wants to break out of this notion oh you think the institution is this but i'm going to give you all these other things that the institution also is and means um and uh with the community films it's almost like okay this is big and unwieldy and what does the subject even mean and how do we even there's in some ways there's more of a demand for him to kind of establish a thread or establish a set of themes that he wants to explore. Um, and that there's a way in which rewatching canal zone is um, it's, it's one of his bluntest instruments. Like it's um, though it's all over the place in terms of what it's depicting and what could, what could be encompassed within the canal zone. Um, it progresses with a real intentionality um, with a real kind of almost causality um, which is, is, uh, is, I think is, is, is not entirely the way that I would describe a lot of, of his other work. I think that actually does extend to something like Aspen, too. I think it extends to Belfast. Um, I think it extends to in Jackson Heights, too, um, for different reasons. And for different, he's pursuing different themes and he has different points. But there's something about um, the community film that emboldens him or allows him maybe to be a little bit more aggressive, to throw elbows a little bit more. Um, because he's kind of careening his way through the community and he's pursuing certain things, you know, 
it's not like, well, if I'm going to do this right, I've got to show X, Y, Z. It's a little bit more like you can't possibly show all of that. So what do I want to do? I think that always motivates Fred. But when the canvas is that large, um, it becomes that much more apparent what interests him. Yeah, I mean, he he talked about Canal Zone um, in a way that a a lot of critics at the time uh, engaging with the film were kind of savaging it, um, talking about it as being repetitious, talking about it as, you know, Weissman kind of revisiting his greatest hits, but he, he mm-hmm. described it as like an advertisement for all the films that have come like before. Yeah. yeah, it's like an omnibus. Because <laughs> like, yeah, you know, in, in any small town or community, you're going to have these sort of essential tax-supported institutions like a police or a hospital right that or a school that um you know Weissman's already covered and in Canal Zone it you know it's so rich watching it is sort of like a retrospective piece because there are so many films within it that are to come still you know we've got like a fashion show that we could tie to model (laughs) we get a visit to the zoo you know and and just like kind of seeing the kernels of those ideas uh, in this film is, is really rewarding, I think. Um, and we, don't, we, don't, we never got the Boy Scout movie, though, which I feel like that's could have presaged here. <laughs> oh, man. But we did get the Mason's thread, though, of Monrovia, so that's sort of related. Um, so, so talking about the length of this film, so is, is this a product of sort of like earned cultural capital or like distinct to the location or sort of Wiseman's expanded vision is it like all of them is it like I think it's worth noting that this is the first film in a five film uh, five year deal that he uh, struck so perhaps there's a bit of freedom gained there but yeah um, yeah one of the things we see with this extended runtime is like you know these expanded speeches and um, I, I know like when I asked him about the extended speeches scenes as something that continues to develop he was you know just kind of coy about it as like that's just what i saw there it was specifically (laughs) right like all right well uh, it's a little too consistent for that um yeah yeah, (laughs) what do you make of like the design of this film this like new three hour well i mean i i I guess the, the sort of though technically that though longer i would say that you know he probably felt a bit emboldened by welfare being such um, i mean just universally like praised and seen as kind of like a landmark in documentary so um you know i don't think that was the main takeaway that people had for welfare so i think it helped a little bit that he maybe could get away with that again um but you know and like you've spoken to him i've asked him many many times his answers are actually un you know, like, you know, disturbingly consistent over the course of 50 years, you know, the, the subject dictates the form, the subject dictates the form. Um, but this is like a, a situation where I look at it and I think it's probably true, you know, like you, that the opening sequence of canal zone, like the only time you're going to spend any time really on the canal is this introductory passage. And you don't want that to be shorter. You know, you want to spend as much time on the Panama Canal in a film called Canal Zone. Um, But in order for him to actually take you where he wants to take you, he needs to kind of like, okay, this will, fine, we'll establish you in this place. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I do feel like 20 years later, if he visited this space, he actually may have decided 
to not show any of that at all. He probably could have gotten away with it. But I think he's also interested in it too. He's interested in the process. He's interested in the dredging, you know. Um, he's interested in the kind of touristic element of it. Um, so he gets to sort of establish that and almost have like a, a mini feature before he then goes into the community, which he spends about two hours with. Um, so that makes sense to me. You know, like there's nothing about that that feels um, there's bloat there. Uh, I, I mean, um, and like I was, I was trying to say before is that he can be, um, he can braid his films in the edit um, and he can uh, sort of lily pad a little bit around um, gathering steam thematically. This is a film that actually there's a, there's a real forward momentum for me when he goes from one location to the next, I feel like there's a real direct connection between one and the other. So it feels less, um, whatever, peripatetic. It feels less kind of, uh, ambling because of that. Yeah. I I think that, that the way you describe the opening sequence as kind of a mini feature is really apt because like there's this anticipation that's built up um like we see all these boats or the first thing we hear is birds right and then we see all these giant cargo ships and then it's approaching the canal and it's like all right we're gonna we're gonna see it we're gonna see this like giant piece of infrastructure uh and then we get there and like yeah it's it's really impressive um and then uh you know we we go through it uh, a little bit but it ends with this speech with the governor of the canal zone. Just one ship a day, an average size ship a day going through here for the course of a year brings in three and a half million dollars worth of revenues. Mm-hmm. We have an operation here which is high fixed cost, low variable cost. So for every dollar increase in revenues, and these are order of magnitude figures, they're not precise, but for every dollar increase in revenues, it costs about 33 cents in terms of workload. So you have 70 cents there to uh, work against inflation or put improvements in the canal and so forth. The same circumstances obtains when you're going down. For every loss of a dollar revenue, you can only save 33 cents in directly work-related areas. So you have 70 cents to find somewhere else, or it's a loss. You either have to take it out of somewhere else, or it's a loss, or increase the cost of the services. And that's what we're involved in right now. Um, Which I think previously you know we might expect to come at the very end of the film right mm-hmm. but here it is like maybe i don't know 20 30 minutes into it uh of a you know nearly three hour work um and you know this is sort of that the last we'll see of the actual canal before we move on right so it's like it, it is this really kind of succinct uh, uh demarcation point where it's like all right we, you got what you came for now we're gonna go do what i'm here for well and and what a demarcation point because not only are you then <laughs> the governor then describing all the details and the economy of the of the zone but then we pan from him to a bunch of old people drinking tea and that's who he's addressing, and 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 right. and that that I th- it may, I can't tell. I, you know, I just rewatched, but I couldn't. That first move is either a cut or a pan. I can't remember, but he does do both in that sequence. Um, and that move is it's it's not only that's the last you're going to see of the canal, but that's like the last you're going to see of us being impressed with these this kind of. Um, this uh, marvel of engineering, you know, yeah. we're actually going to spend time with the incoherence of old white people in Panama (laughs) having tea. Like this doesn't make any sense from what you just saw, but this is where we're going to spend the rest of the film. Yeah. And it also works. It works well to just like sort of um, lay the groundwork for the politics inherent in, in 
what the the actual canal is as well as the people who work for it and sort of this they take such good pride in their work and that yes they're also the first people to suffer whenever we have to like <laughs> cut but um but also how perfect is it that like the governor of the canal zone is also the president of the Panama, like so the crazy. Panama canal right. company yeah it, it's just like this because his temperament is like a great illustration of sort of this like cold-hearted uh calculation concerned capitalism and you know uh he we we talked a lot about like sort of the alienated workforce in meat and you know the workers were treated as sort of like this extensions of the machine and in canal zone like wiseman frames the relationship between worker and company as even further distance and you know he's like i said he's paying lip lip service to with this pride they're taking but um they're they're just like they're so far from like the ideas of profiting from this canal and <laughs> this like combination of governor and owner of the company this conflation of uh this territory and company is just like a really tidy uh thing that he's found yeah no indeed yeah it's interesting like a lot of the writing talks about the canal zone as kind of like a socialist situation because there's like a single employer right for everyone but it's really kind of just this like capitalist nightmare dream of like you know an entire state to serve the production of capital of boats moving through this piece of infrastructure well it's just this distinctly american imperialist situation too where no one is calling it that no one's calling it colonialism or imperialism but it's entirely that but there's just this there's a deep self-denial about that even being what's happening you know so it's sort of structured in such a way that you can pretend that's not happening but of course it's happening yeah, I, I watched this film uh, coming off of the uh, finishing the Criterion set of uh, Once Upon a Time in China oh. um, and just kind of having that fresh in my head as like this depiction of like turn of the century colonialist, colonialist Hong Kong and like, you know, there are all these kind of British dress and like British leisure activities that like Wang Fei Hung is like, oh, what's this? You know, like kind of strange thing. And like, here we are in Canal Zone where it's like, you know, people uh, who look and dress like Americans who are doing like dirt bikes and like, you know, any number of like kind of Americana leisure activities, the Boy Scouts you already alluded to. And it's like, you know, there's there's no other way to see this, but as like a colonialist endeavor. Right. But there's not a there's not a. I, I don't think there's an inkling in, in a single person's mind that that's what they're. Even, I mean, even like right. sort of like British Empire sort of you know colonialist tales from from a hundred years ago, there was yeah. a sense of pride in being kind of like the master race of of implementing yeah. that. The racism, the colonialism was on the surface. Here, like, there's just no, there's no, there's, there's, there's a completely divorced from the the actual. Which is part of this like mental disconnect that seems to be, uh, it, like increasing the mental load on everyone who lives there right because there is this very clear something's not quite right about all of this and it manifests in like child abuse it manifests in like marital problems it manifests in like crime you know but but nobody's willing to really call the situation what it is they're just like oh you know naturally we're, we live in the canal zone things are a little different and more stressful but they're not willing to say like we we don't belong here no totally. <laughs> yeah well there's there's a like the the 
the sequencing of the the governor, you know, in the Tea Party going into, I don't know if it's the next or it's very, very soon after that, the judge, you know, introducing a kind of legal proceeding, um, which then goes right into prison sequence, um, right. which is like, the, he, that is that is as direct as uh, progression yeah, as Fred yeah. is capable, I think, of allowing himself to do. But in that, the, the judge bit, he's talking about... Like, we Americans are a tough breed, I think, and uh, we know how to meet adversity. We're adaptable. Our nation has uh, succeeded in the heat and disease of the tropics, and... Uh, in the bitter cold winds of the Alaskan frontier. As if, like, <laughs> what are you doing by the Arctic? What are you doing by the... <laughs> it's not about you being exactly. resilient. You don't have to be here. Why are you here? <laughs> it's like we have a great law enforcement here in the in the canal zone. Um, and then, yeah, they're, they're like, it's so safe here. And then... <laughs> Which is guy, like, yeah. what What even is Law Day? <laughs> law Day! <laughs> I know! Right? Like... Yeah. Law day. Uh, is it the one year a day a year they make law or they enforce law? I, I don't know. I think it, I kind of took it as just like recognition of like <laughs> cops and like the legal structure. Yeah. I don't know. It was something I hadn't heard of before. It's, so, it's sort of like the Star Wars holiday, especially Life Day, maybe. You know, <laughs> Harry Fisher sings. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is kind of Christmas for Canal Zone, right? Because, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is worth getting into. I mean, like, this is like, American culture, like, uh, Orosboros, right? Like, like this is American culture just, like, to such a degree of parody because you have to assert for yourself that you're in America, right? The, going back to what we were just talking about, like, like even though everything around you, uh, you know, the, 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 some languages, like in Spanish instruction on the TV, you know, the, the environment, the flora and the fauna might say, otherwise you have to continually remind yourself, this is America. And like the, the degree of patriotism, the degree of like belief in American exceptionalism yeah. that is required to think that what you're doing is like, you know, a worthy endeavor is such that, you know, Sean and I talked about, like, you can't even play a game of tennis without it being this kind of, like, heightened patriotic thing where, sure. like, you in the middle of a point, you have to stop and, like, salute the flag while the bugle uh, plays. Like, it's it's just... Um, yeah, you have to overcompensate. You know, right, right. And, you know, the and, and you have to bring everything with you. You can't adapt to the place you're in. You have to bring it with you to be yourself, to be your, to, to be a true American. Yeah, I mean, the the only Spanish we hear is in that, you know, uh, language Costello. instruction. Oh, yeah, that, well, yeah. I guess both fittingly on the TV, right? Like, yeah. like the, yeah. the principal means of, like, American cultural indoctrination, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but that's the only space allowed for Spanish because, all right, it's through the TV, you know, you're still engaging with America in that sense. I mean, with with Wiseman, you're always talking about, you know, large canvases, long time, long takes, long scenes, but he's certainly capable of economy. Like there's the there's the moment when uh, yet again, inexplicably, there is this clay pigeon skeet shooting um, activity happening over the water. Oh God. And and we and we go and we cut to the hand of somebody operating right. the 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 skeet shooters i guess what do you, what you would yeah. call it and we pan up and it's and it's a, and it's a local uh panamanian gentleman 
um, with this kind of blank look on his face, obviously doing his job, attentively pressing the button when it needs to be pressed. But She's so ambivalent. So it's ambivalent, like, yeah. It's comedic. Yeah, yeah. But it's also damning, you know? Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, okay, why are these people doing this here? And right. then why is this person, is this, I mean, <laughs> what is he thinking? Like, what is he possibly thinking about doing this activity, performing this task for these people in this spot? And you're not going to get that. He's not going to say that. Fred's not going to ask. But you get to sort of put into that blank face all the things that you're wondering. For, mm-hmm. for the operator and the skeet shooters, it seems like merely perfunctory. Like, even the shooters don't seem to be getting any, like, enjoyment, I guess, out of it. It's all, it's very quick. Like, pull, shoot, like, reload, next guy pull, like, like we, we as a viewer, don't know if they're even hitting their targets. Sure. Uh, we can't tell by any expression on their face because it never changes. It's just kind of like, you know, another day doing our thing in the canal zone because yeah. that's what we do here. Right. Well, you, you talked a little bit, Arlen, about, like, sort of um, this need to, like, remind themselves and sort of, like, the, the there's, like, this danger that, that lurks, like, there are all of these like ritualistically like protecting themselves from like these threats to the American bubble. And one of the lines I, I, I love uh, is uh, on the radio ad. It's like, here's a crime prevention tip for our women viewers. Never drive with your purse lying on the front passenger seat with the window open or the door unlocked. If you do, you may find that when you stop for a red light or a stop sign, an arm will come through the window to snatch your purse. Remember, it's always crime prevention time. You can help by taking some simple precautions. Good luck and be careful. <laughs> and, like this tip, this tip for ladies uh, from like the the purse snatchers or whatever. But uh, but you know, there's there's like this idea of like the the child abuse rates. And um, the the woman reading the letter about like the the um, sick out, yeah. um, and then there are like you know women women's lib issue obviously <laughs> comes up, um, and then there's like yeah there's this like skeet shooting, uh, the need for like this drug dog who's funny enough, <laughs> named Kino. <laughs> uh, CN Television presents K Pasa, and now here's this evening's host, Army Sergeant Bob Foster. Good evening, and welcome to K Pasa. We've got two guests tonight. First, Sergeant First Class Jim Webb. Sergeant Webb is with the 227th Military Police Detachment. He's the kennel master. And our second guest is Kino, one of the patrol dogs that's currently being worked in the Canal Zone area. Sergeant Webb, I'd like to welcome you to K Pasa. Could you tell us a little bit about Kino? What what type of training has he gone through? Uh, Kino, in addition to being a patrol dog, is a drug detector dog. And he went through 21 weeks of training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, but, uh, you know, as like this, you know, kind of propagandistic like TV show, it seems like, a uh, local TV show. But it's like, you know, it, it, it's a complete farce. And uh, that, that are all like sort of these immoralities sort of like peeking in at the seams. Um, and most of the danger being, you know, from the American POV of like the Panamanians and sort of like this loss of like a non-existent American culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. and so they do these rituals, uh, in order to like preserve this and, and yada, yada. But, um, Barry Keith Grant, uh, I think like pretty productively talks about, uh, a 
Boy and His Dog, the the uh, mm. post-apocalyptic yeah. movie, as a way to call this film post-apocalyptic, like like this is America when America no longer exists, like these right. empty gestures and rituals to pr- pretend America is still alive, and the idea of death of America you know we can we can talk about the ending there's like the graves on memorial day um and uh last episode we talked with meat about like the the um the end of the american myth this idea of the american myth and this seems like uh such a great follow-up in that it's like this ironic attempt at preserving something that we already know doesn't exist doesn't exist um yeah and like sort of this death in vain there's all this talk about death in vain yeah, well, I mean, Fred, Fred loves death. <laughs> How many films end with death sequences or funeral yeah. sequences? Like, he loves it. Um, and, and there's a way in which you can't help in recent years to think that that's something, you know, presaging his own. Maybe he's, a, he's been doing this since, since the 70s, you know. Um, uh, and I think that he's, uh, he uses it as a metaphor. I also think he finds it kind of funny and absurd as a concept, as a human being. Um, but uh, step I think on the graves. What's that? Now, please, don't walk on the grave. Try not to walk on the grave. Like that's fun. It's very funny. <laughs> it's very, well, Monrovia ends with a with a with a coffin yeah. and going into the earth. Like it's so <laughs> absurd. It's pretty. Yeah. Explicit. It's grim, but you know he's cackling as he's as he's completing that edit. Um, so, but nobody. I think I think you're I think you're right. I mean, it's hard not to see this as being you know like like a, a post-death of America scene um, because not only uh, whatever you might say about America in that point in history, like the fact that you're in exile from America basically, and it's just an idea at this point. And mm-hmm. America's kind of only ever been an idea, but this is the taking it to a, to an uh, absurd length. Yeah. I think, I think there's this thing too that kind of underscores the film of this impending transition, right? Uh, back to Panama yeah, um, and like the walls are closing in kind of on this community. Like there's an awareness that their time here is like coming to an end and it's, it's almost sort of like a death rattle, you know, all this ultra patriotism happening is like, no, we're here. We exist. We're Americans. And like, you know, we don't know what the future holds, but for now we're going to assert ourselves as much as we can. And what was it for? What was this period of time? What was the generations of people born here who and lived a life here, and we're, we're not going to be relevant in the future? Like, where, how do you how do you in the, how do you locate into the future the experience you've had, the life, you've, the, the values that you've had? Um, Drowning sort of... worms. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's also there's also the idea of um, this you know this death in vain thing where they're they're talking about like we can't let these soldiers die in vain. There's like that carries much more weight when you think about the 20,000 people that died to make the, the canal who were mostly not Americans that have died in vain already, mm-hmm. um, that are just not considered um, right. during these rituals. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then as far as the future too, it's interesting to think about, you know, this is like as explicit a form of like American, American colonialism as we'll get, but just like, you know, the what will come in the 80s of American involvement throughout Latin America, right, is as its own sort of imperialism, what's already happened, you know, in like yeah. Chile, um, as far and, and, you know, uh, Cuba and elsewhere, like, like, just all these American meddling throughout the hemisphere, right, is like, uh, uh, 
what what will what will this will turn into it's not going away it's not going yeah. anywhere it's just going to morph well and there's something relatively placid about this compared to what that's going to be in those other countries in right. the 80s there's something just sort of kind of um imperialistic and uncomfortable but not necessarily interventionist in the way that it would it would, it would develop into so yeah. um it's sort of like yeah a, a bit of a calm before that storm too um i was thinking about how uh tonally and you're you're talking about the the funereal aspects of this uh how much i think this is a companion piece to gates of heaven um the Earl morris film which of course you wouldn't really sure. put them in the same sentence most of the time and they're so f different formally and yet there's a sense of humor here and a kind of morbidity that feels of a piece um <laughs> and it's uh I, I actually don't know if errol how much he's talked about uh mm. this film in particular um but i do think that wiseman's sense of humor is not that far off from what early yeah. morris is like For sure well, we know they're friends, right? Yeah. And, and they're in they're in, in dialogue and, and obviously share some kind of sensibilities here. But yeah. like, yeah, I absolutely love Gates of Heaven. I think it's one of his best films. But yeah, there's just something about the way that this plays out. Again, maybe maybe it's that causality. Maybe it's the kind of bluntness that, that, that he shows at moments in this that feels um, reminiscent of, of what hmm. Morris is doing. And two, it's like, you know, in the in Meat, we talked about the notion of it being like his bicentennial film. Mm. But in Canal Zone, it's it was actually shot during mm -hmm. the bicentennial and they're explicitly uh, addressing this. So mm -hmm. like just kind of the irony of celebrating 200 years of America in in this time post Vietnam, where, you know, the cana Canal Zone is feeling like the death of. Uh, coming and like you know it's it's the start of the carter years and we have you know mm -hmm. the oil issues and it's just like just this total incongruity of yeah. like uh uh patriotic fervor and like the reality of what america is at that point in time well i think you're right to bring up the bicentennial i think the crucial part of this you know that's that's the kind of like a, a backbeat of this is uh, you know in, in terms of how much this is meant to be about america even though it's about an American property um, on foreign soil. Um, that that question of what America even is, how did it start, why are we here? I feel like that's threaded throughout. So a bit, such a Wiseman thing to do to make the bicentennial film in the Canal Zone. It's incredible. I want to talk about this, this piece um, that uh, has been cited um, in, I think, Benson and Anderson's book as well, but uh, this this Christianity in crisis piece that was wrote contemporaneously by uh, Shepherd Bliss, um, who uh, was a minister and he's, he's still alive, but uh, a professor in the Boston area that grew up in the canal zone. <clears throat> and uh, turns out that he's like a, a, a lifelong leftist advocate. Um, you know, he was at the DNC in 68, much like Wiseman and um, saw uh, MLK speak and protested Vietnam and recently has like written in support of uh bernie but um he talked about how the film was was really representative of his experience there um especially how wiseman portrays the panamanians like push to the french society which i think we see again um in from my from what i've seen at least like the workers at the store uh s certain workers at the store uh or like the local aspenites um in aspen mm -hmm. um but uh he said that's very much like by design to be, you know, cut them out of the American consciousness of the white Americans that live there. Um, but uh, 
we've seen like regularly and we've talked about this a lot since since uh the 70s like this sort of anachronistic look of uh Wiseman's films and Shepard Bliss talks about that and how it contributes to Canal Zone because it strips it of like the lush uh mm. look the landscape of this film yeah or of this area mm-hmm. And he has this line about, like, you expect Teddy Roosevelt to, like, pull up on his horse. Um, <laughs> but uh, he talks about how the, the rituals really are that exhaustive and, like, every day feels like Independence Day. But um, yeah. I wanted to, to ask you, I guess, just, like, formally, how does how does it change it for you, um, whether it's this film or just, like, the last few of the brain era, uh, seeing these black and white films at a time where that was not really... Uh, what you were going to see in the cineplex. I mean, his choice to work in black and white at a time when that wasn't yeah. happening. Or, or not even his choice, but just like what that does for you as a viewer when you know that this is the 70s. Yeah. Um, I th- it's interesting. I, I don't know what I'm about to say because I, 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 it's a good question. But I, I, remember, I do remember thinking that and watching some of the films from this era about um, there, there being this, at moments, t- hard to pinpoint the, I have to sort of remind myself what year it was made because of that. Mm-hmm, right. That said, I'm a child of the 70s, and so there was still video and photographs being taken in black and white a fair amount during that time. And seeing certain clothing and certain settings from that era doesn't seem too out of time for me um, for it. But I, th- I think whenever you... Um, it is it is always interesting to revisit an era like that shot this way about a place that's also hard to to pinpoint location Mm -hmm. and time-wise you know Mm -hmm. i didn't know what the canal zone in 1976 looked like before this i wouldn't have a sense at all of what that might look like so um it's sort of teaching me how to look at it the entire time you know and so um and that's part of what i think he's playing with and i think that maybe the choice to to shoot it this way is, is an asset because there are moments when um you know the beginning of the film you're looking at the these vehicles that that sort of tug the the boat along the the, the along the perimeters and they talk about how yeah. um these are basically they were built in 1910 and so they've been operating ever since nothing's different about that shot it's a big ship right. and those things and then soon later you see um a, basically a suburban block you know in the area and it looks like an american suburban block from the 70s um mm. that there's a whiplash that goes on there, which I think he's playing with. And maybe if it were black and white, and if it had the sort of 16 millimeter color um, quality, um, that wouldn't pop the same way, or you wouldn't be kind of mm. disoriented in the same way. And I do think that this film benefits from that disorientation. Yeah, I also think about like the animals um, getting them on the truck in the beginning, like how oh, yeah. that doesn't seem distinctly, like you couldn't tell about looking at this, yeah. this, this was 1970. Totally, totally. I think too, um, the thing about you know an anachronistic aesthetic applies to the film, but it also applies to the canal zone. You know, just separate from the yep. film as it existed, right? And and uh, actually, uh, having seen Canal Zone and before revisiting it for for this episode, um, I started reading um, Hoberman's book Make My Day about you know cinema in the eighties, and and there was a quote that stood out to me having watched it before and knowing I was about to revisit it. Uh, I want to uh, read here. Uh, about how the 70s were kind of this time of nostalgia for the 50s and he was talking about like American graffiti and happy days and stuff Um, and he says uh, cognizant of the impending bicentennial Americans were searching for the past a simpler time a hometown they may have never known Uh, so they're like 
in the canal zone, they're sur surrounded by these triumphs of like American ingenuity from decades ago. Right. And they're, they're holding on to this as like, this is why we're here. This is why we're great. This is who we are. Um, but like, you know, kind of going back to where we were talking about, about just knowing the realities of the situation and like how ludicrous it is to sort of hold on to that in the face of all that, uh, you know, really speaks to Canal Zone, but also just this American thing that was happening at the time, looking backwards yeah. and trying to recapture something that never really existed. And it's also 1976, and there are these changes and evolutions happening. We get hints of it. It's not, um, it's not the main uh, theme here. It's not the main thrust, but it exists. You know, there's mention of there's a women lib, women's lib kind of reference. You know, there's um, from the pits of hell. From the pits of hell. <laughs> <laughs> there's this very mid '70s marriage counseling sequence, right, where you've got uh, all these couples sort of reckoning. Um, you know, with sort of like more with progressive attempts to work through their 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 relationships. You know that that's not a '50s thing; that's a '70s thing. So it's it's there, but it's but it def it definitely feels like a '50s culture trying to reckon with uh, with those changes rather than kind of embracing the change. One one of the things that that isn't talked about much in the literature, unless it's like offhanded, just like mentioned. Is at the beginning of that scene, which made me crack up, is that it opens before you know what it is with this guy talking about animals having sex in front of his house. Gloria and I lived uh, in San Antonio just before coming here. And we lived in a cul-de-sac. And a cul-de-sac is an extremely large circle, and there were five houses in the cul-de-sac. And uh, for some reason that... Uh, I don't understand at all. All the dogs and cats in that cul-de-sac had sex right in front of our house. And uh, this was uh, embarrassing, you know? Yours too. <laughs> and uh, I didn't understand it. Uh, I'm not a sex therapist. Uh, I'm merely a marriage counselor. And, uh, but they did, you know, and this was, it didn't bother our girls, but it always uh, it was bothering to us. This is Gloria's story that I've stolen from her, I've uh, told it a hundred times. And uh, one morning, Gloria and, uh, and some of the other mothers in the cul-de-sac were uh, having the cul-de-sac women's club morning meeting. And uh, sure enough, it happened again, you know. Our poodle pup, whose name was Sebastian, was uh, trying to have sex with the dog that lived next door, uh, which happened to be Sebastian's mother, White Socks. And this embarrassed uh, the whole women's club meeting enormously. And uh, if it, things weren't bad enough, our 13-year-old daughter made matters worse by saying uh, to Gloria, oh, why is Sebastian doing that? And Gloria said, well, we, we tried to be very open and honest with our children about sex. And Gloria said, um, well, that's Donna. That's just the way dogs make love. And Donna, and Donna said, I know that, but why does he want to do it with an older woman? <laughs> In the cul-de-sac. It's like, what, 
I'm sure there's a lot to say about that scene, but it, it's one of those ones where I like it. Maybe it feels foolish to put into words because it just there's something about it that maybe does feel self-evident when you watch these people who just like can't get in touch or are struggling to get in touch with each other. And then like sort of like talking about being embarrassed by these like natural acts that these animals are doing. It's such a great juxtaposition. And that's the sort of thing where, you know, of all the footage that he's gathering on his films, um, you can best, you can be assured that if somebody's talking about animals fucking on their lawn, that Wyden's going to put it in. <laughs> it's going to get in there. Yeah. Um, another scene that I want to talk about that, um, I think is is important was important for me uh the this like this apperception test that this young woman takes in the middle of the, yeah. the film um so it's like this young young woman um and she's being asked like she's given all of these illustrations that are like pretty dramatic between like couples and she's asked what's going on and it's clearly like uh, a piece of therapy and she, i think she's at the mental health uh center just to take a look at that tell me what in your mind is going on in that picture. She looks, re she looks really troubled about something, though. Seems like something's really... Well, what is troubling her, do you think? I think basically the, her having to leave. She has to leave. Maybe they want her to go away to school, or maybe she wants to stay there on the farm. I don't know. Maybe she is this woman's husband's lover, and she caught him, and she's running away. What brought this event about in terms of her catching them, or was she looking or what? Yeah, I think I think maybe she just stumbled up upon them. Maybe they were out in the woods or something other. She might have just stumbled up upon them, and she watched them. How does she feel about that? Maybe she feels like she's less of a woman because she can't please her husband and hold on to him, that he has to turn to somebody else. Because this one, she looks younger than the wife. And how does she feel, the other one? I guess she feels like she's been caught. <laughs> she's been caught in the act. But uh, it it's an odd scene because it goes on for for a while, um, and and it doesn't it doesn't relate to the rest of the film the way s scenes like that in juvenile court does. Right. Oh, that's part of the process of being in juvenile court, um, and I, I think maybe for me there's like a thought that it relates to the way that we make meaning in Wiseman films, uh, but that 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 didn't feel sufficient enough for mm. me, um, and then. Thankfully, Anderson and Benson's uh, chapter on Canal Zone like opens up like on this like five page uh, piece specifically about this scene, which which I think um, is is really great because they're much smarter than me. But um, <laughs> they, they they talk about how um, they have this great passage that expounds on something that we talk about a lot, which is like the accumulation of meaning. Mm. But they say uh, the the scenes of Wiseman's films do not simply accumulate or add up to meaning. Rather, he structures every scene and even transitional shots so that they reverberate within a complex structure of meaning, reaching out to other shots and scenes at multiple levels of significance. 
And, then, and they go on to say that like no scene in a Wiseman film survives the edit unless it serves more than one purpose, mm-hmm. which I think mm. is interesting. Yeah. Uh, but um, and can be part of this ongoing talk of like how to watch a Wiseman film. Yeah. Um, but they talk about this apperception test as like part of a tapestry of like mental health issues that we see in this and therapies in this um, community, but also that these tests, which are used to extract like what these clients are projecting in their heads, um, they say that that's kind of what Canal Zone ends up being about is like this this culture that is projecting its preconceptions and mm-hmm. and sort of like building meaning into belief. Mm. Um, Mm. and, and then there's like this Wiseman irony that we're doing the same thing Mm. in his movies. In his movies, yeah. Um, but I, I think that it's, it's a a good opening to talk about, uh, socialization in his movies Mm. and which I think this film and Louise Sweet, uh, in Sight and Sound, uh, review talked about this pretty well. Um, but when we see stuff like the church sermon or the valedictorian speeches um to think of them about watching people being socialized and creating meaning um like and key are like these reaction shots um or i think in city hall like the uh the veterans like segment where you're just watching these people talk about um their experiences and they might not be as self-evident in terms of like what is the bigger project of this um, as much as something like clearly that the church sermon is like you can make sense of that right away in terms of its its face value but i think that um it's interesting to think about wiseman's project in these community films as just like letting us watch how socialization happens does that make sense yeah no absolutely um I'm trying to think about how to i mean you did a great job of sort of setting up that notion um i think that uh i, mean, I guess that's when when you approach things the way that he does from the angle of communities and institutions and um, concepts that are organized into ways of, of, of structuring society and family and et cetera. Like that's, it's sort of constantly present, right? I feel like that's constantly present. You're looking at, um, I think it's one of the reasons why he feels so confident as a filmmaker observing. Like, I feel like the, the notions of trust and intimacy that wind up, popping into almost every other documentary filmmaker's vocabulary is not something he thinks about at all. And I think it's because part of what he's looking for and part of what then emerges because of his way of existing uh, for a period of time is he's aware that everyone's in a sense kind of, you know, uh, they're having conversations with themselves before they say anything out loud. They are sort of Mm. defining themselves to themselves before they represent themselves to another person. So the idea that he's there is sort of the least of the situation, the least of it, you know, it's not for the camera, it's for the world, it's for the community. We're all, we're all sort of reminding ourselves how to behave. What we should say in this moment is something that there's, it's not, uh, um, there's actually no, no such thing as like a, like a fully sincere expression. Like you're always weighing who you are and what you might want to say in this situation. And he's seeing that he's capturing that. Um, and so, you know, like I, and I don't think whether or not this is accurate, cause I think you could talk about this all day long, whether or not people are performing for him or being self or, or regarding him in any way that, that affects the footage he's getting. I don't think he ever thinks that he does whether or not he does to me, it comes back to his interest in, 
um, a bit a bit of what you're saying, like how uh, how are, how do people um, communicate to another subtly or institutionally about what the rules are and what they're mm-hmm. supposed to be saying, what they're supposed to be doing. There, there's a um, there's a good line. I think it was in uh, David Denby's Boston Phoenix piece when it came out, uh, which is a very good um, uh, contemporaneous review. But he he talks about like how these longer speeches, which um, Benson and Anderson, I think they counted up, it was like 24 speeches making up 74 minutes, which they said was like 42 percent of the film's speeches. <laughs> and one single um, extended ceremony. Yeah. And um, Denby talks about how that works opposite of like sound bites in order to create like a tidy reality fiction, which, you know, we see in contemporary documentaries all the time. Um, and instead, he's giving these people room to express their values. Yeah. Uh, like very simply, like we're getting more of what these people actually think than what the filmmaker is trying to say through them, mm-hmm. which is just good filmmaking i think absolutely and i think that but to 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 unite these two ideas you also see like when they land on a cliche you know you can sort of see them reaching and then landing on that cliche or repeating themselves um and i don't think he includes that to hang or critique necessarily but he wants to see he wants you to see them make their way to these points and make their way you know and i feel like there's something very human about that. I'm actually, I'm, I feel great gratitude for being able to sort of share that space with somebody as they kind of make their way towards developing an idea and expressing themselves. But I think that there is that always that combination of this person's expressing themselves and they're also trying to figure out what they're supposed to be saying. Um, and that's, that's constant. And you bring up the, the city hall sequence with the, the veterans. There's, I mean, talk about more than one idea going on at the same time. There's, there's both a kind of nakedness to sharing as well as knowing what that room is expecting of what they're sharing. Yeah. And, and that's like the beauty of letting non-professional speakers speak is to see all of this happen. Um, it, I mean, that's why, that's why his films are so rich. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. what is it at the end of canal zone where the guy's at the podium and he like flubs up like the, like I forgot what it wasn't the Gettysburg. I don't think maybe it was, but uh, some American platitude and he just like keeps like flubbing it up and there's a certain comedy there but also just like uh a a nice chance to see like somebody just speak like people speak yeah well that's i mean most filmmakers who are editing for the point or editing for the punchline would there would be a cut there that would be that emphasizing how funny that is letting us know that oh, we sure. should laugh in that moment whereas wiseman that might be funny it Maybe, but, but it's part of like, like he gives you enough room. He gives that person enough room to be a human being within being um, somebody that maybe we find funny in that moment. Um, what, uh, another, another scene that I want to talk about in terms of like, because part of the length of this film is um, these scenes, non-speech scenes that kind of go on for a long time, like the Abbott and Costello in Spanish thing that juts up to uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, ad and it's just kind of you're just watching it the first time and you're just like okay like um gonna try and like remember this and try to f- put it in and and it goes back to what benson and anderson are saying about this like reverberation which like it turns into this like great like thing about like the absurdity of uh american imperialism and um just like you know kentucky is in is in the title yeah and then yeah. you also have these like 
American, like these classic American comedy, uh, this duo partnership, um, just uh, dubbed in Spanish. Um, and that's something that really does reverberate throughout the film, mm-hmm. um, whether it makes meaning right there while you're watching it uh, and you, you can say, oh, I know what this is doing right now. It's just one of those things that that ends up um, capturing the feeling of probably how Wiseman felt when he was there of, sure. mm-hmm. as like an interloper. Yeah. I, I think the thing that's interesting that, you know, what you're talking about and, and Benson and Anderson's idea of a culture projecting its preconceptions is like, um, this is like, you see a KFC ad on TV, you hear Jimmy Buffett on the radio, ergo, I'm in America, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and this way that American culture is like, whether or not it's like an explicitly colonial exercise, you know, Coca-Cola is around the world, McDonald's around the world. Right. And this is kind of, uh, approaching the dawn of like a global American monoculture. Right. And kind of Weissman, uh, uh, I think portraying the horror of that to some degree. And I think, you know, it's just one step further to apply the same idea to the idea of America uh, writ large, you know, yeah. the contiguous United States and the absurdity of our existence here, um, and the culture that we have just kind of plopped on top of this land, right? Like it's it's the same thing. It just happened a longer time ago. And it, it has to be something that he was thinking a lot about before going there, right? I mean, obviously, the, the it's one of the reasons why that I think the apt to bring up the bicentennial is like uh, that was on his mind. It had to have been on his mind to go there because. You know, as we know, he's not somebody who spent a year in that territory before filming. You know, they, 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 it, he starts filming pretty quickly upon arriving somewhere. Um, so the fact that he's shooting what he's shooting, he's emphasizing what he's emphasizing is that's making an impression on him. You know, he's not sort of capturing 360 view of all the different levels of society and then kind of emerges with this film. He's looking and this is what he's seeing. So he had to have been arriving, thinking a lot about these notions. Um, thinking about it. But even on the kind of moment to moment basis, thinking about that Abbott and Costello bit is as somebody who directs through sound, I can just imagine him like <laughs> the boom just makes its way to the TV at some point and the camera bars, okay, okay, I guess we're shooting the TV. And, yeah, right. um, it had to have been done that way. Cause I <laughs> and, 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 and you have to think that there was a, other stuff that they saw on TV there, like, yeah. but they included Abbott and Costello and Um I want to ask you, so we can kind of break away from Canal Zone, maybe, unless you have other things to say about it. Um, and I wanted to just ask you, as somebody who um, has been, like, uh, on the Wiseman beat, whether just for you personally or as a freelance critic or curator, uh, for a little while, um, but also somebody who pays attention to uh, contemporary documentary, um, can you can you talk about... Uh, one like how Wiseman, as like in terms of the critical perspective, has changed since you started getting into like since you started seeing his movies come out, um, and and how that relates or doesn't relate to contemporary documentary filmmaking. Like, hmm. is there have you seen influences here or there, or have you do you think that there's a disconnect uh, that type of thing? Um. A lot to be said there. I try to figure out a way of articulating some thoughts. I think, I think that, I think Fred's been influential throughout, you know, and I think that he's a he's influenced uh, uh, and been a source of 
inspiration and obsession for documentary filmmakers yeah for 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 all these years for 50 plus years um i think that there are moments where you can see the influence a little bit more directly you know um and uh you know i would say like there's um contemporary or 21st century chinese documentary filmmaking i think is very overtly Mm-hmm. Um, influenced by Wiseman, he comes up in their interviews all the time, you know, um, and and is a real major touchstone. And you can really see it. There's duration. There's sort of really, sort of it's there ever. <laughs> yeah, there's duration, right? But, but but there's but there's also just kind of a, a minute paying attention um, on a kind of ground level um, to do whatever the subject matter may be. Um, but then there's also like, I mean, I, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a Steve James without a Frederick Wiseman, but then Steve James, of course, is doing his own thing. He's, he's making different decisions, but I don't think you get what Steve James cares about without right. sort of having been obsessed with Wiseman in the, in the 1980s. You get documentary filmmakers as disparate, uh, contemporary wise as like a Robert Greene or the Ross brothers who, um, uh, are way more sort of stylistic and, 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 and textural than Wiseman, but obsessed with Wiseman like it comes through it shows up he's referenced um so like I, I I think it's been consistent throughout I would say there's something about the longer he goes the more than half century that he's been working that more folks who may have been dismissive or disinterested previously catch up to it like this is the, probably the most sacrilegious thing I could possibly say but I kind of mean it which is that something like the way that the la- the way that jackass is critically received 22 years after it started um speaks to how if there's an integrity to an approach um Mm -hmm. it may or may not be to your taste the first time around but the longer it goes people catch up to it you know and i think that that's the case for wiseman too you may have some folks may have 45 years ago said well wiseman's not i like i prefer this to that and wiseman does this and it's too clinical it's too cold it's whatever um, and then you make 50 films, you know, you kind of, you know, <laughs> you, uh, you, you can't say that he's not committed to what he's doing. Um, and I think that, um, and because no one actually thinks you have to have watched them all in order to appreciate Frederick Wiseman, you can dip in, you can watch this or that. And then you get folks who may have been predisposed decades ago to saying, I'm not really into, interested in Wiseman to say things like, well, I like National Gallery. You know, mm, I didn't like mm-hmm. the other one, but I like National yeah. Gallery. And it just sort of like winds up being that I think in terms of filmmakers, uh, it's I, I, maybe there's maybe the, the penetration is deeper now in terms of like mm. Wiseman familiarity. Maybe that's because of time. Maybe that's because he's hung around. Maybe that's because these films are definitely more, better available than they used to be, you know, more available than they used mm-hmm. to be. Um, and places like the museum and other places that sort of are committed to continuing to show things in a theater too. So like when we show his films in a theater, there are some older folks that catch up to these films or that they haven't seen it in a theater in a while and they want to come, but tons of young people are coming out to see these films. Um, and, and I think that that continues to, to, yeah, to have an influence on, on what uh, filmmakers are doing. I, th- I think that's really astute, and and it's interesting you bring up uh, Jackass because I was I was talking to someone about this recently, and I think part of it is that you know the critics contributing to the reception of the new film grew up with Jackass right. and have a frame of reference for what those guys are doing. And when I think about someone like James Walcott, who in his Village Voice review for Canal Zone was um, basically saying lamenting that it's short on information that it's like he's kind of 
showing this predilection for ethnographic films and not realizing that you can make those films from within your own culture, right? And it, it's, it's, um, so he didn't really have that, that what documentary was, uh, prior to Weissman, he, he's still operating on that mode, right? Whereas whether it's Green or Ross Brothers or Jessica Kingdon or whoever it may be who's working in doc now, I think we've all kind of, come up with this idea of like Weissman as a master, right? He's like one of the main guys. Um, and, and that, you know, we have that frame of reference th- that we can build off of and, and expand upon. And, and I think that you get like, the, we're talking quite a bit about uh, Weissman in ways that I feel like maybe we're not the main ways that he was spoken about decades ago too. We can talk oh, about sure. the sense of humor. We can talk about, you know, that it's always been there, but now like, and I think I've gotten that from speaking to some friends uh, who've been obsessed with Wiseman for longer than I do. Like that's, they, they'll get together and they'll compare notes about how funny they think things are, or there's this sequence that does this thing and it's crazy. And this is kind of weirdly avant-garde and it's just kind of there to be discovered. Um, And I think that there's so much material and it's, it is so fantastic, you know, consistently that you can, you can emerge with different things you, and, and you can have a, a stylist being in like Fred Wiseman could be the, their favorite filmmaker and they're not going to make mm-hmm. films like Fred Wiseman, but it definitely carries over into what they're doing. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're finding this, but like what people's favorite fi- Wiseman film is, can be really telling because uh, it, you know, there's so many to choose from. Um, and there's, I've been introduced to several of his films that way because I had not known that that was, actually one of the canonical works or that that you know right. that could you know I, I felt that way about blind which i it took me a long time to see blind mm. and that blind might be my favorite one like i'm just completely blown uh-huh. away by it because i think on a formal level it's a, it's doing something that he kind of doesn't often do you know by having having to sort of solve for um you know what his subjects can't see and what does he represent what does he depict and how does he edit accordingly um i think it's absolutely mind-blowing but He's not a formalist and he wouldn't, you know, talk about it in that way. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned um, Steve James. Well, me and Arlen are both big James heads, but, um, and, and Robert Greene. Um, but uh, w- one of the columns that I was reading of yours about Wiseman, you mentioned America to me, which is just like, for I think for both Arlen and I, just like one of those works that's like star, like stars has just done it so dirty. And it's such an important <laughs> work. And it yes. has, it, it is so indebted to, uh, Wiseman, yeah. but he has a totally different approach. He has this sort of mm-hmm. like interrogative approach that mm-hmm. you see, you know, in Hoop Dreams as well. Um, and then, you know, Robert Greene has a much different approach than Wiseman, but, you know, is like a huge Wiseman head. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's interesting to think about that influence in not just like one-to-one ways of like, oh, you know, they eschew this sort of um, uh, talking head style yeah. or introducing you type of thing, but it permeates in, in different ways. Well, yeah, and, and James is somebody who spends a long time with subjects, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Wiseman doesn't, um, right. and yet there's a carry off. There's a they can carry away some similar things. That they're looking for similar things. Steve James also has an incredible sense of humor, you know, and mm-hmm. and is also a humanist, you know. In fact, I, Steve James is way more of a humanist than Wiseman is in so many ways. Yeah, you know, Wiseman thinks humans are are hilarious, and you know, <laughs> um, and we're such ridiculous people who you know create societies in these you know unjust ways. Whereas, like James, I think is way more empathetic uh, in his approach. But I do think that you look at 
his footage and it's not that different from Wiseman a lot of the time, but James mm-hmm. is doing that through living for months and years um, uh, with or near the subjects. But then like somebody like Robert Greene, of course, we all know is, is sort of a Wiseman head, but there is a similarity in the idea that Green actually doesn't spend a year or two in a territory the way that James does. He actually does have a more prescribed film shoot approach. And within that film shoot, he emerges with material that he's going to painstakingly construct into an edit. And I think, and that's basically Wiseman's approach. Yeah. Very cool. Um, well, do you have any other uh, things you want to hit before? Well, like, I mean, the one thing I was, I, 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 we, we talked a little bit about these kind of community films and mm-hmm. uh just because it's on my my mind, there's uh, there's a way in which I think about uh, Weizmann's uh, place within these places and how that affects a bit uh, sort of the the tenor of what the of what the films are. Obviously, as, you, as we were saying, like every sequence has to have more than one meeting, and he's doing multiple things. There's multiple moods and modes throughout there, but at the same time, you can maybe, maybe it's constructive or useful to think about um, this sort of tenor that emerges, and, 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 and maybe it has something to do with his relationship to that community. So there's something about the ways that we're talking about Canal Zone that feel, you know, um, like it's a bit lacerating, it is a bit grim, there's supposed something apocalyptic about it. I think he's, it's I, I think that he's there's some, even something condemnatory about about mm-hmm. what he's doing here, whereas something like Aspen, uh, but but at the same time he is an as he's an interloper and we're interlopers and he's making us think of this as we've said mm-hmm. something like Aspen where like Wiseman's famously a skier and clearly spent a lot of time in that community and it's very funny and it's very sort of eighties and yet. I think there's a bit of an infe- there's more of an affection there, and maybe a oh, self sure. a self critique to something like Aspen because of the familiarity with that space and, um, uh, and and that kind of like the upstairs downstairs class divide of all of that um, is maybe a little bit more kind of closer to home for him than it was in Canal Zone, um, and then something like uh, Belfast, Maine, which again that's that was his that was his town like that's um there's a real intimacy there um and i think that there's an anger in that film that Mm -hmm. is sort of missing from these other two because of his deep knowledge of that of that space doesn't make it the material necessarily better or more insightful or more useful etc etc but i do think there's a tenor to the films that comes through whatever relationship he he has with it so how do you relate to that to uh that Paradigm to City Hall, a place that he obviously, you know, lives. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think dozen doesn't, right? There's, there's a way in which his relationship to, to Boston's a little bit different now than it, than it was years ago. Right. But I mm-hmm. think that there is, um, there is a deep familiarity, but that is also, like, with a city as big as Boston, there's probably a lot that he's discovering for the first time, too, um, that mm-hmm. he's just kind of curious about. But I think there's great affection there, too. I think there's great affinity with his main subjects. And, and I think that, uh, that place and that person in particular at that time meant that there's almost a stridency in that film, I think, um, which I think is related to in Jackson Heights too, which is, mm-hmm. it's so clear how enamored he is with this community and enamored oh, sure. he is with these people. Um, that I think speaks to maybe less about his relationship to Queens, New York, but more like, where he is in his life at that moment and what he's gravitating towards. And he's gravitating towards a community like that. Yeah. 
I think that that's really interesting when we talk about the relationships between these community films and, and going back to James, something he does throughout his work uh, that, you know, is sort of different and, and expanding upon uh, what Weissman's done is, is going to people's homes, Yeah, you know, uh, well, a, never a lot. Well, leaving the city. <laughs> like, right, right, yeah. He's he's expanding the, the institution, I guess, to the personal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and it's something Weissman does and doesn't do throughout this series right like in belfast he's going into people's homes in uh aspen he's he's going into people's homes but it's around like you know uh yeah a a lesson like the art lesson or like the the alternative homeopathic treatment things like that it's still kind of a commercial realm Mm. uh canal zone we get none of that canal zone is like no in the home no personality so i'm I asked him about this uh, when I interviewed him for Monrovia Mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of typical Weissman answer. It was a choice. I, I, you know, it might not have, it might not have been a rational choice, but it was a choice. And and that's pretty much all I got. But I'm, I'm curious if that's sort of related to like, you know, when he feels like he's sort of had some ownership to a community he's documenting and when he feels like maybe an interloper and, and maybe not as comfortable going into somebody's home. But, but uh, if you have anything to say, it's, it's like, it's, it's less of a magic key and more of just like, I think maybe a, a useful, thing to keep in mind right that Mm -hmm. um he is who he is as an artist and he is open and he's curious and he's going to make choices that you don't necessarily anticipate you can't pin him down like oh you're the person who's going to do xyz no he's not going to and yet there's still this human being coming from where he comes making encountering this community and i think there's a like i said there's a there's a tenor there's a tone there's a impulse that may be um inevitable there um like i said doesn't necessarily define it um to 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 a limiting way but i it's it's there you know like the things that that and and i do think that um he consistently is aware of his own privilege and he's not somebody who's going to deny that while also not calling attention to that and make that a subject but i do think that's an element of everything that he's doing um and that's just sort of his nature where like it's a fact that's a fact he's not going to show up and blend into the into the you know into the wall right um and uh and he's not somebody who is going to pretend that he's not um what but there there are people in the room that we may be critical of that are actually people that share uh a, a, you know, demographic or race with himself. I, I, I'm sure we'll also talk about this when we get to the Paris stuff too, because um, I, I'm sure that that's very marked by being somebody who doesn't, who isn't from there, but you know has a, a experienced it through the arts and that type of thing. But yeah, no, that's that's accurate. Yeah. All right. Well, um, this was great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Thank so you much so fun. much for 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 coming on. Uh, we're very grateful for your time and uh, all of your thoughts. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I have one question for the two of you, which is that when was the last time you talked to Fred? Uh, I talked to him a year ago in January. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah and that mine was when he was doing the junket for Monrovia. So was that, you know, 2018, something like that? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know when the next one we're going to get. I know he's working on a fiction film right now, um, but I do think that um, the best ways that we all can at this moment to encourage him to make another one. Um, whatever we can do. Um, but I don't know if he's going <laughs> to listen to this. Um, but I know, I know for a fact that he's mulling his next choices, and I think that we, we, cool. we, we need another one. Cool. Right on. 
No, def- definitely agree with you there. All right. Um, well, uh, thanks for listening, everyone. It's three o'clock in the morning. Running on her adrenaline. What I'm trying to say is that tomorrow's today and we got to do it over again. So won't you kick it in now? Second win, we got two more hours to That's Jimmy Buffett off his Havana Dreaming album, kicking into second wind. The Canal Zone Garden Club meeting scheduled for tomorrow has been canceled for the reason of mourning. Members are advised of the next meeting right here on SCN.